Hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast, it's Toby Miller here and I'm in the uh, beautiful downtown, no there is no town, Welsh quasi village of? Madhvai. 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 Oh you're the authentic speaker. Madhvai. Madhvai. And as you can no doubt tell, I am in the beautiful home of Justin Lewis, who is the co-author of the light classic television studies the Key Concepts, second edition, currently rated 954,871 <laughs> on the Amazon bestseller lists, with Bernadette Casey and Neil Casey and some other people, uh, Ben Calvert and Liam French. But Ben and Liam, I've never met and not here. I'm not even sure they really exist. They do. They do. They do but exist. Ben and Neil and Justin are much-loved friends of mine, and I'm very excited they've agreed under some duress, to have a chat about their book with uh, the alleged Liam and Ben, who obviously, in fact, are real. So, Bern, why don't we kick off? What, what was this book? What's it about? Well... Let me um, guess, TV's part of it. Right? TV's part of it, definitely. <laughs> well, TV plays a huge part in our lives and probably most people's lives these days. And I think the original idea of the book really was that um, television studies itself was fairly in its infancy, really. Mm. It was still mm. regarded as something of a, a bit of a maverick uh, subject area. And the poor relation of film studies, I would say, at that time. Um, so there was stuff written about uh, television studies and television generally, but we felt that there was a need for something that would explore some of the main concepts, the key concepts, in fact, um, <laughs> uh, in, in that emerging area. And I think we put ourselves in the position of students who um, are sometimes searching around for a starting point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's really what we, we wanted to do, is to have something that was accessible, but, but um, intellectually not too naff. You know, we wanted it to have a bit of depth to Can it. Can you explain naff to people <laughs> in distant lands? Okay, sorry. Um, we didn't want it to be... Too bollocks. shallow, too shallow, or bollocks, yeah, or or any, uh, or too dumb, dumbed down to right. use that awful expression. Yeah. But yeah. we wanted it to have some kind of intellectual credibility, really. Yeah. Yeah. But we also didn't want it to be. I was going to say, why did you bring Justin? <laughs> <laughs> we, we wanted it to be. Various people dropped down. <laughs> no, we we wanted it to be <laughs> something where the student could think, okay, um, I need to think about how I would apply ideology, let's say, to the mm. study of television, mm -hmm. uh, the concept of ideology, how, you know, how, how can I begin that process? And so we thought we could have a sort of alphabetical uh, listing of the key concepts that we, we felt were important, but, um, and that's what we did. So the first one is access, and we didn't have a Z, so we got as far as youth television, I think. Um, Maybe in a third edition we'll find something beginning with a Z. Or Z. Oh, I've got one for you. Have you? What's that? Yeah, one of the many people who can lay claim to being the inventors of television. Swarikin, the Soviet inventor, who then was brought to the United States and his ideas were the ones that ultimately helped generate the US TV system. Oh, I think we found a man who can write the entry as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, well actually, I was thinking of something on, on zoological programs as well, actually. <laughs> and and I'm, I was thinking back to... Because you're into species 
tech television love exactly. interest it's has never really so. gained proper verbalisation. <laughs> no, actually, seriously, though, we did have this consultation process about what we were going to include and not include. And yeah. one of the things we decided not to include were names of people in our entries. Oh. So that's why we haven't got Okay, Z cars. No names, yeah, no maybe. There are, there are Zebras? There's Zed been cars. very little written about zebras. Zed zebras cars. Zed cars. Yeah, or indeed zebra crossing. Zed cars is in yeah. the book. But anyway, so so what basically what we, we did was we had this A to Z or A to Y listing and mm. they're, they're not like dictionary definitions but mm. they're not full chapters. So I think they're somewhere in between, in between. They're two, three, four pages at the beginning. And were you thinking, um, when you were doing this, of a British reader in general? Um, or a, a reader, you know, in English from anywhere? And it, a, a reader in English from anywhere. But I think, mm. to be perfectly honest, our experience was British and American. Mm. I mean, Justin had been working in the States at the time. I mean, this explains my involvement in the book, yeah. really. I was, sent the, uh, um, I was sent the proposal when I was working at the University of Massachusetts. I think you were sent it in 1994. <laughs> <laughs> and now it um, can be told, listeners. And my, my main comment was, uh, yes, this looks good, but uh, if you want to sell to a US audience, which you probably do, there needs to be you know, more references to US television, US programming. So, um, unfortunately, the response of the editor was, yes, that's great, could you join the team and, and kind of Americanise it a bit? Um, so for, for us, it's quite difficult to resist that. I mean, we're, we 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 didn't want justice, <laughs> so, but, but we. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I have a more direct approach. I when I am asked to review manuscripts, I say there's not enough reference to, and then I list my work <laughs> for this to be taken credibly. I don't list my name. I just list things I've done, and that's supposed to elicit. Would you like to be the co-author or thousands of citations of? my works but it's been a complete bust so far I've yeah well when, I, when, when you do that with stuff that i've written i always just say can you not send this to toby miller <laughs> <laughs> anyway so you were thinking of what historically have been the two biggest markets i guess for textbooks non non-textbooks original research whatever one calls these things in english right but you need to hit those bases a bit and of course in the case of britain a lot of us tv is available here anyway isn't it? and vice versa as well i mean not so much the other way around i guess but um yeah and i think actually the process of writing it alerted us to areas of television that we weren't that we weren't directly familiar with actually you know brazilian soaps and uh well in fact when we were looking at soaps that's a good example you know soaps have become completely international mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. every pretty much every TV um, station across the world has got a soap of one sort or another. So, yeah, I mean, it, we were hoping that it would have a wider appeal, but in, in the English language. It's been translated, but not into very many languages so far, I think. Has it been translated? I yeah. can't remember. I think so. I think as authors, we <laughs> should be clearer about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe I not. think we were, we were asked, would, would, it, would it be would we be happy for it to be translated into Portuguese? And we were, I think, not simply happy, but delighted, uh, ecstatic, really. But whether it was actually uh, translated, I think we probably need to check up. Oh, well, okay. And I do wonder, obviously, there's an Anglo-centric uh, character to the book. Whilst it also covers 
American, lot of American, a lot of US examples, and some Australian and New Zealand examples as well. It's Anglo-centric. And I do wonder, I think there would be quite a lot we would need to explain. Some of the examples are very rooted in, in British culture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. What about some of the intellectual differences, not necessarily within your writing team, but within the study of television and across these countries? I mean, some of the, di the differences between having an entry called ideology, which is mm. inconceivable in the United States in most contexts, as opposed to, you know, having entries on effects studies and what happens to your brain when you watch violence or something, which is much more central to... A lot of work. communications. I think we were quite um, late affair about that. And I think I don't think we any of us were particularly precious about uh, taking a particular party line, and we sort of let um, everybody else get on with what they wanted to put in. And then you know we looked at it and felt that if there were areas missed out, we'd cover that. But I, I think we were pretty relaxed about that. Um, so I suppose it generally reflects the view that the entry will reflect the. Mm. the sort of zeitgeist of the person that wrote it, but with everybody else chipping in. So, um, yeah. oddly, I don't think that was as much consideration as you mm. would expect. I mean, you could expect us having long, detailed discussions about these things, but on the whole, we didn't. Well, but there were things that, that Justin brought from America. There were headings, you know, that I don't think would have appeared if it, if it was just us. Um, so there were, there were things on kind of media policy. I think that you you brought in some of the um, I don't know yeah I think uh, not necessarily effects theory Justin but there were things that that I don't think we had in our A to Z list. We were trying to capture rather than a particular perspective. We were trying to capture a broad range. I think that mm. was that was it. We were trying to see what was out there and uh, trying to kind of summarise that, which. Um, is always in some ways harder. We found it harder, I think, than we thought. We thought initially, this is going to be easy because you know we know what's out there and we can sort of summarise it. But actually, I think if you're writing a book and it's on a very specific piece of research or it's coming from you know your own perspective or a particular theoretical mm -hmm. perspective, you you know you're in a straight line. And with this, we were trying to capture everybody else's perspectives as well. I think there were some interesting things, though. Um, I remember we had a long debate about whether we should call our entry ethnicity or race. And that came from the development of certain debates around those areas, you know. Yeah? Do you think? Remember? Yes. Though I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, when the book came out, the first edition came out maybe 2002, if I got that right, or is it a bit yeah, later? Yeah, 2001 or 2. 2001, 2002. And the second edition... 2007, I 2007. think. 2007. So it must be about time for an update, don't you think? Well, curiously, um, coincidentally, we have actually been uh, asked about whether we'd like to write a third edition. I think what's really interesting is that the way in which television is watched has changed so much in five or six years. Mm -hmm. Certainly in, in the UK, uh, so much is watched... Uh, on demand and online and it's far more controlled. So I think the interesting thing, the, the interesting change would be there's a kind of a static nature to some of our categories. I think we'd have to really reflect on 
the ways in which the, the, the kind of social context of viewing has changed so much. So, to personalise this, Neil, what might be different about how you watch television, in inverted commas, from 10 years ago when you first wrote the book? Um, I watch a lot of box sets when I want to watch them. So DVDs? Yeah, yeah. Physical DVDs that you yeah, rented absolutely. or bought? Yeah, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Of TV and, series? Of, and particularly TV series. Mm -hmm. And long TV series. So, uh, I've, what we have watched The West Wing uh, over the course of, I don't know, a year. Um, you know, watching a, a number of episodes, because it's seven series, The West Wing, isn't it? And, and uh, quite a lot of episodes in each series, mm -hmm. like 16 or 17, I think. Um, so actually that took up a year uh, of evenings, you know, where we didn't watch, didn't even look at what was scheduled, unless it was sport. Um, <laughs> uh, we didn't look at what was scheduled, we watched that box set. And so other other television series we've just watched mm. over, over a period of time. And of course, The Guardian, the British newspaper, has what you, you know, a, a, a section each week of what, what should your next box set be. Does it? Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. So I think that's, that's a big change. I watch things which I've downloaded and I watch them when I want to watch them. Um, I mean, you often don't even watch them on a TV anymore. You watch no. them on a computer screen. Yeah. Watch things on catch up. Yeah. You know. So yeah, it's it's the. I think we've become kind of, if you like, liberated from that idea of having the box in the corner, uh, where you all sit around and, or even one person sits around and watches it live when it's when it's actually on. That's mm. changed completely, really. Although I wonder how I mean it has for us. Actually, the data shows it's quite surprising how little it's changed for most people. Most people still like to watch live telly, yeah. which I'm surprised yeah. by because I watch very little live telly. Mm -hmm. um, I nearly always that's because you're too bit. cheap to get Sky and watch the football. Well, that's partly it. Um, <laughs> but also, if something is on a commercial channel I'm, and it's on at nine o'clock, I'll start watching it at nine twenty, so I can yeah. fast forward through the ads. So I, I now almost don't watch television advertising because you don't have to. Mm -hmm. And extraordinarily, ITV, which is a bizarre commercial move on their part. ITV, the British, main British commercial channel, on their catch-up service, you can watch their programmes and they edit the commercials out for you, which seems a bizarre thing to do commercially, but, you know, it's great for the do, viewer. Do people still enjoy watching adverts? I mean, all right, I, I don't like watching adverts, do pe but people did. Adverts, you know, could be something which would... Uh, continue to interest people, attract people, so they'd stay there watching the, watching the ads? Not really. Most of the data, most of the surveys suggest that people think there's too much advertising on television and, and that what people sometimes quite like, oddly, is the ability to have a break during the show. Mm. So they want to go and make a cup of tea or... Well, the BBC is forever introducing faux commercial breaks in its and programme. For that reason. Yeah. For that reason, because no people want to be able to get up and do something, so the commercials provide that opportunity. But the degree to which, I mean, yeah, there are some fantastically made, brilliantly made commercials that are witty and entertaining. But on the whole, most of them are not, and most people would like less of them. I think so, that's, sorry. Do carry on. I think that's interesting, what you were just saying about kind of contradicting my point about being liberated from the box, because 
in another section of my life where I mix with a broader range of people, really. Are you saying that we're not representative of the great British public? Is that what I'm hearing? I, yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, when I, when I mix with um, a broader range of people, I, I have noticed that. And it's funny, I was away in Switzerland just recently with a, a big group of people. And the, uh, there were quite a few of them who were texting back and forth to their friends in Britain to find out who'd been voted off Strictly. This is a programme, Strictly Come Dancing, uh, which is on British TV at the moment. And uh, they wanted to know the updates mm. live, mm. and they would have been sitting in front of it had they been at home. So, yeah, I hadn't really thought of that angle, but you're right, absolutely. And people tell me, it's, 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 I mean, it's always surprising how the technologists always get it wrong. The technologists see that something is happening. I mean, I remember... In the 90s, people said, by the year 2000, there will be no difference between a computer and a TV. They will become the same object in people's houses. And even in 2012, that's not true. They got that completely wrong. Um, I, I think that actually there, there are sort of social traditions around television watching that are very hard to shift. And just because the technology allows you to do it doesn't mean that people will do it. So, mm. and, and technologies never get that. I mean, they never think about the social... Well, also remember that lots of, of people have pretty bad connections, internet connections, broadband yeah. connections. Yeah. The actual reliability yeah, of this, by contrast with what they get from the television, is pitiful. Actually. That's true. But then again, you still see, you go on a journey, you will see people watching films on their laptops mm -hmm. on trains, mm -hmm. for instance, which is something... Yeah, that, that is OK, something. I'm not yeah. saying that that's what everybody does. I'm just saying that that's something which is available yeah. that wasn't available when we first yeah. wrote that book. No, clearly there are huge... Yeah, I mean, that's mm -hmm. definitely true. And also, there are, yeah. were generational differences. I think we're not ideally, we're not necessarily the experts on what it's like, you know, the, the different ways in which people watch. There's an increased privatisation of watching for exactly that reason that you can watch in so many different ways. And I think the generation, <laughs> the generation below us, or the two or three generations <laughs> below us, probably. Don't stop there. <laughs> but but there's still something. I mean, my you know my daughter who is part of that generation. She's 16, and yeah, you know, people have been writing about this for years. But the the experience of watching something live, so you can then talk about it in school or wherever the next day, mm. is that it's surprising how powerful that still is. Yeah. And she still therefore wants to watch things you know, live. Yeah, as much as they are live, so that you can have those conversations. The Olympics opening ceremony in the UK was a really interesting example of, oh, for London 2012, was a really interesting example of that, where I didn't see it coming, but it was very much a, a kind of a totem that, that everybody was discussing, uh, and that had a huge kind of uh, uh, consequence of people talking about what uh, being British meant to what, what Britain was and, and, and what Britain is. And, and that was a good example because people did watch that live, didn't they? Yeah. But you were just mentioning before we started recording, Neil, that you and Byrne, in fact, watched that live in a Spanish bar. Mm. Can you talk about that experience? Well, that's another way of watching TV that gets left out in effect studies, new technology, determinism, and advertising and marketing spiels. Yeah, right? the, 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 again, the context of watching, the way of watching. Yeah. Um, we were in a bar in A Coruña in, in, in Galicia, 
and uh, um, Fruit de Mer. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have Fruit de Mer that night. We had calamari, which I actually <laughs> shaped on the plate into the five Olympic rings. Oh, rather like what we did with your towels last night when preparing for your arrival in exactly. the shape of an ostrich. <laughs> anyway, yeah, moving... I don't remember that. Um, <laughs> yeah, we watched the Olympic opening ceremony in a bar in, in a kind of a tapas bar in, in A Coruña. And the, we, so we watched it amidst Spanish people kind of half watching, half not watching, uh, being pulled into particular moments so the Rowan Atkinson bit it went slightly quiet because people were pulled in to watch that that bit finished and it became noisy we were watching it in 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 or listening in to the Spanish commentary and struggling a bit with that but interpreting it ourselves as as British people um, and so in that bar there were a variety of people watching in different ways, dependent on their nationality and what they understood. Mm -hmm. What was very interesting was an American uh, family also in the bar watching it. Uh, and I think the difference in, in their interpretation of what was going on and ours was, well, there was a greater distance than in the Spanish interpretation, I mm -hmm. think. Including some... Um dispute about the factual correctness of some of the items. <laughs> yes, yes, the, yes. The American family felt that, that, that it was wrong to suggest that, that uh, Tim Berners-Lee had uh, invented the... Um, World Wide Web. Yeah, the World that, Wide Web. That, that funky thing that young people use. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so there was an interesting kind of British-American discussion about that. Where very forthright views from the American family and rather more un understated views from, from It was the interesting, that government. point you just made about uh, Rowan Atkinson, there were only, as I remember it, there were two moments when the Spanish um, occupants of the bar kind of stopped and looked. One was when the Queen parachuted in and the other bit was the Mr Bean one because I think Mr Bean has been, you know, broadcast yeah, yeah, pretty much everywhere. And... Uh, they seem to really love those two those two parts, whereas stuff, for example, on the National Health Service, well, I mean, I don't think... I think that was incomprehensible too. It was incomprehensible, yeah, Britain. yeah, it was. And it actually, without the commentary, interestingly, we knew what was going on, but we didn't get the subtleties of it, I don't think, until we got back and watched it again on catch-up when we got back to Britain um, with the English commentary on top, which was yeah. a whole different experience. Yeah, very different understanding of experience, mm -hmm. yeah. I do notice, just to raise the tone a little bit, I do notice that um, <laughs> the, uh, there's, wow. there, there's, on the list of concepts in the book, there's nothing beginning with B. Isn't so it? box set, it's an obvious entry, isn't it, really? <laughs> in the third, the exciting, in the exciting third edition. Yeah. Justin, would you be willing to write that one? Or well, I, as you introduced the idea, Neil, I thought you were the obvious candidate. Okay, yeah. I'll rewrite postmodernism, you, and, and I'll work on box. I have to say though that certainly in the United States, the box set DVD as a means of having ongoing revenue from both uh, films and television series is on the way out. It was a really nice little earner, as this saying goes, for about five years, bringing in astonishing amounts of money. People don't do it anymore. So what do they do instead? They stream. In the United States, people have stopped downloading and they've stopped buying. Uh, so that what they do is rent, essentially, through uh, that service. In other words, what they're doing is returning to what they did when they got 
subscriptions to television. So you're, you're moving into a world where the VCR video cassette recorder, the VHS mode or other modes is not being used. It was the model, obviously, for the idea that you would have your very own version of this. I know just, just over there, there are some box sets of The Killing, a Danish, Danish. Yeah, Danish. TV show that was, I think, remade in the US actually, yeah, as well as being yeah. released there. It was very successful here. Uh, so that's not done anymore. So the VHS model of I'll take what I want and watch it when I want, which of course is actually 30 years old, and everyone says this new technology is new, but it's not. It's a rerun of all those debates. Mm. Never really took off as to how watch people watch television. Superseded by, we'll buy video cassettes. Well, people did that for a while. Then DVDs in much bigger numbers. It was much more successful. Take up less space, higher quality, more clever marketing, more integrated marketing with films and television series. And now it's how do we make money from streaming services? Because people don't want their iPad, whatever it is, completely taken up with a movie. You know, iPads have a lot of space, but if you have two Hollywood movies on them, you can't install the next operating system, for example. And there are lots of other things that are hampered. So increasingly, as there is a move to cloud computing, the idea that all this data is held above you, including your software, if, you know, move to that mode, this idea of there being permanency to, to your access is gone. It's quite interesting. You know, there's a big case at the moment about Bruce Willis, who apparently has the largest iTunes library in the world and is worried about his legacy of art to his family in part of his survivalist, isolationist, mad Idahoan life and has discovered that he can't gift his iTunes purchases to his children, that they die with him. Really? Yeah. So there are very interesting legal aspects to this. There are spatial aspects and there are modes of viewing and listening aspects that are all in play right now. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm doing is helpfully suggesting that box set, by the time the third edition actually hits the streets, may A, the book may not hit the streets because it might just be an e-book, although I doubt mm. that. But B, box set might be an important but almost historic almost category. Historical. Although the, the, the history that you're describing is quite an interesting one in the sense that even if it is obsolete, it's an interesting moment of something that came and went yeah. in terms of the commercial reasons for its, yeah, no, its emergence and its demise. But also, I'm wondering Sorry. about you talking about... I mean, I, I take what you've said about all of that, but mostly we were talking then about films. And I think the history of cinema and the history of television don't completely overlap. They don't converge completely. And even though the point you're making mm. about the technology and all that are, are right, um, I just wonder whether watching television on... I mean, when you have series, a series on TV, that's, that's when the box set kind of comes into its own rather than a DVD for a particular film. Um, I mean, for instance, we, we rent on Love Film for one-off films. I, I very rarely watch a film on TV now and less frequently than in the past go to the cinema. But I think for bo box sets for us, and I'm, I don't know about everybody else really, um, it's more about missing things that were on TV once a week or twice a week or whatever mm. that, you know, that you want to catch up on uh, because you missed it the first time round. So for me, there is a bit of a difference really, not in terms of the technology and what you said about that, but in terms of the, I don't know, the qualitative sort of experience well, of watching. Well, there's a genre difference as well, isn't there, yeah. which is drama. It's great to be able to control 
when you watch it. And it doesn't actually matter when you watch it, for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, it doesn't matter when you watch it. With you use the, One of you used the example of Strictly Come Dancing, which uh, in the UK, and I think it's in the US now, isn't it? Strictly Come Dancing is, you know, is a competition where there's an element of li where the live moment is significant. Mm -hmm. So rather like sport. sport, televised sport, the live moment is significant. But, you know, regular, those regular sports viewers amongst you will, will know that actually watching uh, sport on you know recorded sport, it actually detracts or, or takes something away from from. So you from wouldn't the get a box set of. Famous... Oh, strictly come dancing or. No, but of football, say. No, no, you wouldn't because the moment that the that you need to watch it, you need to know about the live moment. And you need to know. You need to be in the. I don't know what's going to happen next, and nobody yeah, will tell exactly. me. But you get with drama as well. But but having said that, there are still. There's still aspects of liveness that that work very well. In that, I mean, there's a, the, a one of the big shows in, in Britain at the moment is Downton Abbey, which is a huge in the US. Yeah, which is a kind of you know classic um, sort of awful Tory. Well, it's a sort of posh costume drama soapy thing, yeah. but it's a it's classics in Britain, classic Sunday night viewing, in that it's sort of cosy, easy, sort of feel good. Mm family viewing for a Sunday night and it's clearly scheduled for that slot and people quite like it on that slot. It has a narrative which means that people can talk about it the next day. At Water cooler television. Yeah. Absolutely. And, 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 and actually that's how most people watch it. Most people don't. Yeah. They do watch it live. They watch it live. On the box set issue, one of the interesting things that uh, Neil and Justin in their co-authored entry on this we'll have to address is of course the case of Alias. I don't know if this was a popular show here, was it? Alias? Alias? No. Jennifer no. Garner? No. She's a CIA agent and it turns That's out what, her yes. mother tried to kill her. And it's, it's, it's very yeah. good actually. Yeah. Or her father. I, I get all those complexes confused I guess because of my own spectacularly interesting personal biography. But before we warm to that much more fascinating topic, let me return to Alias because this was a show that was on I think maybe five seasons in prime time on a network in the United States without ever rating well. And not only did it not rate well, the people whom it drew in were not that super desirable cohort of watchers that can mean that low ratings don't mean the end for you. Mm -hmm. The reason it stayed on the air was boxed set sales because it did gangbusters in sales on those. It was the first television series really to become a massive DVD purchase success. And what the television series live on, I think, CBS or ABC did was exactly what cinema now does for the purposes of DVD or online or especially TV watching, which is to be an advertisement. Mm. So the fact that it's on the primetime lineup on network TV is a marketing promotion it's not the telos, do you see what I mean, at all. So it's very interesting history. It's a genuine break, I think, and much more towards what cinema's been for a long time. By cinema, I mean hard-top exhibition, mm -hmm. which is, it's a promotion for where the real money's made. In the case of cinema, it's a promotion for where the real money's made, which is television. In the case of a television series, it's a promotion for where the real money's made, which in this case was boxed set sales. And I mean, that's one of the things that new technology has changed is actually it's changed a lot less than, than I think people mm -hmm. that suggest. But 
it's it's changed you know which vehicle is the promotion which peer vehicle is the, the thing that makes money i mean mu the music <laughs> business is the classic example i mean there was a time justin gates just gave a lecture on mr undergrad so he's really up on it <laughs> <laughs> i am and uh, um Whereas, you know, in the past, the tour, the, the live performance was basically a way of promoting the object, which was the record yeah. DVD. Now it's almost the other way around because yeah. you don't make so much money out of those objects. So you've got to make money out of the live performance. So you get, the, you know, the, the live, the, you're able to buy the, the, the music quite cheaply. And that becomes a way of promoting the concert sure, tour, yeah. which is what you make money out of. So the economics have, have basically shifted. I mean, the same activities are going on, but there's just a diff different sort of financial exchanges that take place because of it. And the internet has partly done that. It's rearranged. Right. And merchandising at those gigs is important because a lot of these big Absolutely. concert tours used to run at a huge loss. Yeah, yeah. they did. Yeah. Right? I mean, 15, 20 years ago. Now they're the record making. Poor Justin, by the way, we've positioned him with a glaring yeah, Welsh seat. light yeah. on him. It would be okay in terms of the high sound quality of this recording <laughs> for you to move the chair off. No, I'm alright. You okay. could probably move it back that way now, Justin. Yeah, okay. I think he quite likes the limelight, actually. Yeah, <laughs> no, I think so. But he, yeah. I think he does feel under pressure. He's feel good now. But yeah. I, I just, just, just thinking about when we were we were talking about box sets and water cooling, water cooler TV. Well, that makes me need to go to the loo. Can you just keep talking about yourselves for a second? <laughs> Um, is that, um, you know, in the end, if, seriously, if we were going to do a third edition, then would we really want to include those as key concepts? Are they key concepts? I don't know whether you'd... If we say we're not going to do... The, the whole book is not a dictionary, which would just say three or four lines on the basis of box sets or water cooler television, but something a little bit more substantial than that, would we actually seriously include it or would we want to actually make it... Um, you know, some kind of a broader, more theoretical kind of entry. I don't know. Yeah, and I think probably the second, wouldn't it? Because it would yeah. be, yeah, a, a descriptive entry just saying, well, the box set emerged at this point and it did this would be pretty dull. Yeah. Whereas an, an entry that says, the box set is interesting because it tells us about the, the shifting political economy of television as a form mm -hmm. and tells us about what those shifts were at particular times. See mm. political economy or whatever. Or I mean, we have an entry in the book on technology. Well, I have a feeling that we wouldn't need to change the title of the entry, but um, just the content. Add to the content. Obviously. We would have yeah. to significantly add to it, and also maybe something like streaming, for example, you know, is another way of um, talking about... I mean, I'd be quite interested to look at that entry on technology now again and sort of remember what we put in but it. Because my, my memory is, is that actually, in some ways, yeah, there would be some differences, but what would remain the same is some basic theoretical points about the relationship between technology and social experience, which is mm. where I think some of the points will probably still remain, i.e. that technology, you know, there is a the view of technological determinism where technology just comes along and is invented and that changes everything, which we you know, put forward as a view and then question that critically and, and, and interrogate it. And I think actually while the technology has changed, the arguments and the broad theoretical positions have changed less. Hmm. We have an entry on new media. Do you? Yes. That was, I bet that wasn't in the first edition. No, I don't think it was. It? And, and, yeah. and probably wouldn't be in the third. Well, Justin's yeah. now going to explain what new media means. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, because people st do people still. Of course, Toby, you, you edited for a long time a journal called Television and New Media, and but it's 
No, it's old media. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, what is new media? It's Television is middle-aged media. Yeah, basically. So. I mean, you know, our whole generation for whom new media is just media, so... Um, yeah, well, they are the for me too. I didn't, but it always was like New Labour. I, mean, I didn't like at some point. the journal being called that. I didn't want it to be called that. That was, as you may know, the requirement of the publisher for it to go to market, as it were, essentially. Or for it to go to market successfully. So, But have we come up with another term for those things that... From well, middle-aged media, if you like. I, There's not really a term for it. I is. just, I still think they're all the media. And one of the things in terms of the intellectual projects of television studies that I find interesting is that... Oh dear, I didn't quite do my flies up as one night. Oops. Sorry about that. Well, I think you got away with it on the podcast. Yeah, 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 so exactly. yeah, yeah no one knows. Because it's oral, it, it, isn't it, really? Yes, as it were. Come to think. Yeah. So in any event... Uh, I had some brilliant insight, it was important, new media, old media, middle-aged, senior moment. Oh, you were saying that the publishers uh, insisted that it yeah, was, was called new media. Yeah, I think it would come back to my brilliant career, actually, yeah. which is where we should have been all along. <laughs> no, I, I think part of the uh, issue is that, talk about the intellectual projects, as it were, of television studies and related domains, that just as people in literature started in the... 80s, writing about film without bothering to read anything people in film had done. So people in the so-called new media studies, or an area that calls itself new media studies, let us say, don't read anything about radio or print or television or cinema. They go back to pre-capitalist philosophers, great ones, Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, or as Neil would say in the Galician Bar, Platon, and so on, yes. skipping you know, capitalism, because it's got uncomfortable things to say, or that you need to understand. So they don't look at political economy, they don't really look at effect studies, they don't look at institutional analysis, they don't look at textual analysis, they don't look at content analysis, because they know this is genuinely different. And it's different because, ironically, they think for the first time it's human. Right? In other words, all the notions about humanity and its intersection with art that you get in classical Greek and Roman philosophy appeal people who do new media studies because they think this is a special means of comprehending humanity. It's pre-modern. So it's just the way that Durkheim or Levi-Strauss or Hegel or Freud or Malinowski, take your pick, thought about indigenous people, that they emerge as signs to us, indices to us of what we're really like if you take away the disputatious world of the division of labour engendered by capitalism or the modernity created by the distinctions between those who are represented by politicians and those who are politicians. If you got away from all of that, then you'd see what people were really like. That's the claim made in essentially all of the social theory of, mo of modernity. That's what these people do. That's why economists in new media love it, because you don't have to know anything about anthropology or sociology. You don't have to do participant observation in anything other than a game numerical form, because this is showing you how people really operate in what essentially are market conditions, right? Mm. I could go on, but I may be losing my yeah, yeah. I think, I think, I think the, the, the podcast audience is scratching its head. Well, this is almost time to bring No, I think Gary Lineker and Walker Crisps are about to make an intervention that you know, I can only yeah. dream of. Can we have an ad now? So yeah. you want a bit of live television now, do you? Live yeah. television. Live TV. <laughs> anyway, so I, I do think this is part of the problem that television studies as a broad church 
gets missed out in a lot of these conversations, which is why this technological determinism continues, ironically utilising ideas that are before the advent of anything like modernity as uh, philosophical notions of what people are like. Mm. That's my kind of major concern, actually. Um, that it just doesn't, it doesn't engage dynamics of capitalism or the modern state at all. Which I feel as though a lot of us tried to, in this book, you know, perhaps more than any other since, I don't know, the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> just to encapsulate. I mean, I could open this at any page, really. Yeah, great. Uh, the concept of sign has taken on a heightened significance in the work of Baudrillard. Right? I mean, you know, that's it really, isn't it? <laughs> so, Did anybody watch Strictly Come Dancing? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I wanted to ask you guys a little bit, uh, perhaps inevitably, about the BBC. Because in the three months that I've been living here, two months, it's gone from perhaps its greatest success ever, its greatest standing ever, where even the right wing admired it, to what is said by people like John Simpson and John Snow, perhaps the most famous television journalist in Britain, to be its greatest crisis. Mm. I'm thinking of the shift from the triumph of the Olympics and 31 red button dedicated channels on ping pong through to the uh, supposed or apparent seeming possible cover-up of programming investigating the legacy of Jimmy Savile, a, an oleaginous television presenter and disc jockey. I, I think in that history that the aberrant moment is the Olympics, in that that's because uh -huh. essentially uh -huh. the climate is, 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 is constant. The climate is you have some major players, um, you know, the Murdoch Corporation being an obvious one, but, but every other commercial player in the British media system hates the BBC because they're a competitor, they're a very successful competitor, um, and they would really rather they weren't there. So any, anything that they can use to bash the BBC, they will use. So there's a whole list of, of people, the political right, um, most of the other commercial players, who are really waiting to jump on anything to knock the BBC with. So the Olympics comes along, and they have to kind of shut up because it's such a huge success, so they, so they buy their time. And then you get the current scandal, which frankly, I mean, you know, the old British phrase, a storm in a teacup, describes it well, I think. Um, it really wasn't the BBC being accused of here. They're being accused of being uh, rather too meek about putting out a docu, docu you know, a particular documentary news programme that they might have put out. I mean, it's the BBC, uh, which is an old accusation to make because previous criticisms have been that the BBC has been too bold about yeah. putting out information that perhaps should have checked uh, before they did. So the BBC put in this curious position which they cowed into a kind of cowardice about disturbing anything that could be litigious or that is part of the establishment in any way. So they're very cowardly about doing that. And so, you know, they didn't do the programme Jimmy Savile because their lawyers probably said, not sure you've got quite enough here. Mm. Um, big deal, really. Um, for me, a, a far more important and disappointing decision was when the BBC were going to do a whole series on climate change around the idea of planet relief. And they, 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 they decided not to because they were worried about the flack they would get from the kind of dwindling band of mad. Uh, of mad folk who still think that climate change is some kind of conspiracy or plot. 
um, and you know, th th there is no scientific basis for it. Mm. Um, so actually the BBC were going to do some genuine public service and were too cowardly to do it. That much more important in my view than, than an exposure on Jimmy Savile, which you know, would have been a public service, but there are lots of other people that can do that. Mm. Um, actually probably can do it better than the BBC does, to be honest. This was a classic for a tabloid news story. I mean, mm. the tabloid newspapers were all completely silent on this story. So quite why the BBC is culpable for not doing it, I don't really get. So for me, this is, this, there is nothing uh, problematic here from the BBC's point of view other than it's symptomatic of the general mm. atmosphere of cowardice that now pervades the BBC because of a political climate in which they know they will be attacked uh, from all sides if they put a foot out of line. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, for John Simpson, I mean, John Simpson was also a man that said that he, as a reporter, uh, liberated um, Kabul. Kabul. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I think both remarks have, have an equal degree of hyperbole and are both nonsense. Well, I think the other thing is that the, the BBC, you're right, Justin, you know, they're, they're under attack from all quarters, but they've been, as far as I can see, they've been extraordinarily open over the last week or so. Yeah, I mean, what um, other media organisation, you know, yeah. certainly in the English-speaking world, would have, you know, its main flagship documentary do, do a piece essentially beating its own organisation over there. Yeah. So what we're talking about, by the way, there's a, a, a BBC news documentary star programme, very established, very successful, called Panorama, which did a show a week ago, almost, exposing what had happened on this other programme, Newsnight, or rather hadn't happened, namely the decision not to play a 15-minute episode or sequence on allegations of pedophilia on the part of this former employee of the BBC, Jimmy Savile. Anyway, sorry. Who on. technically wasn't an employee, employee of the BBC anyway. Right, yes. Yeah. Right, so yeah. this, that's yeah. a legal, just a slightly mm -hmm. legal mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. distinction. He was, you know, he appeared on BBC programmes, but he did other things as well. I mean, the, 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 the scandal is, is much bigger, really, than this issue about the BBC. Of course, the BBC is, is getting a lot of the attention at the moment. But you're right, Justin, it's a complete... Um, it's a it's a gift to the tabloid press the whole Jimmy Savile story really, um, and and partly again for people listening who may not be familiar with this Jimmy Savile died uh, fairly recently last year, and was lauded really in the press about because he did a lot of charity work mainly with children as it turns out, um, and raised millions and millions of pounds and so at the time everybody thought okay he was a bit of an oddball maybe I shouldn't say this. Uh, he was a bit of an oddball, but actually, he, you know, he was he did the right thing, raising all this money, and now he's been exposed, or it's alleged, that he has molested and um, raped various young girls, including many people who were disabled. Yes. At Stoke Mandeville Hospital, yes. one of the places yes. where he worked or lived, and children in care as well, because mm -hmm. he he did a lot of charity work for um, care homes or you know. And then, through yeah. schools, that sort of thing. And there's clearly a broader cultural issue here, which yeah. is there's, yeah. a, there's a systematic failure of you know, various authorities, Crown Prosecution Service, various police services, um, you know, the hospital authorities, and the BBC, amongst others, mm. to take seriously complaints when they came forward and to believe the kind of you know, money-raising celeb over their accounts. Um, and that's, so that's the more important thing for me yeah. because it's actually that whole uh, culture of not being believed, you know, when, when anybody um, raises a complaint or makes... Um, it, it's 
you know, it's endemic actually in the system when it comes to rape cases, whether you're an adult or a minor, um, and particularly for child abuse cases where the, the default position is not to be believed, you know, and, and, and when you're up against somebody who is or was at that point a kind of, um, you know, a public uh, figure of, I don't know, I mean, what's the word um, I'm looking for? <laughs> you know, he was, he was a kind of a national treasure, there we are, a national treasure in many people's minds because of his charitable work, um, it's very difficult, you know, as a as a 14-year-old girl or whatever, to mm. yeah. to make your voice heard. And, and that's and that's the yes, thing that's the most that's important the issue, for me. Which it's not, yeah, it's not about the BBC. I think it is instructive to compare the way the BBC has handled this with the way, for example, uh, Murdoch organisations handled hacking. Uh, where there was a, you know, it would appear there was a concerted cover-up, absolutely systematic attempt to deny in every way criminal activity around journalism uh, and, and the contrast with the BBC, which has been very open, um, is actually uh, played into the hands of the many critics of the BBC, uh, including, really weirdly, I, I agree with the point about John Simpson, and other senior BBC figures who were on different kinds of contracts, not straightforward employees, who were free to have a pop or to be very critical of the management of, of, mm -hmm. of this organisation. And, and I, I'd absolutely agree with your initial point. It's just another, it's another excuse. It's an absolute kind of moral panic about the dreadful things that the BBC is supposed to do. And it's, a, it's just a further attack. And I think that, that, that what Jimmy Saddle did was, was it's just entirely different. It's not about the BBC, it's about a range of other things, about, about power and sexuality and celebrity and, and kind of, yeah, individual culpability, not corporate culpability. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I appreciate that, and I think that the point about public institutions like the BBC, and it applies to its cognates in other parts of the world that I'm aware of, is that they are always in crisis and always up for grabs for just the reasons that you guys have outlined. Of course, that in itself can be a public service, because who knows how much good can come from the shedding of light on this horrendous story. You know, there'll be bad aspects that will be about moral panic. There'll be good aspects like encouraging people not to tolerate this. Because there's so much discussion of how now yes. about how he groomed. I'd never come across this word in this context really? before. Mm. You know, I understood it to be about hair and horses, but it's actually about young people, right? Grooming someone to become a victim from when they're very young, yeah. so that when they are 10 or 12, then you do it. I mean, the fact that there's more knowledge about this stuff, more discussion of it is good. The trouble is, because he was such a freakazoid and so oleaginous, it makes it look not like an ordinary but appalling problem and instead something to do with his being maniacal. Yeah, right? yeah. But it is a bigger problem about especially men's sexuality that obviously needs to be addressed. Anyway, just getting back to TV. Uh, oh, yeah. No, I asked you guys about the future of the BBC because of these two moments of incredible triumph when it was briefly above criticism and then at the moment, which is a very dark uh, moment, let's say. What about thinking in the British context, what is still called public service television, i.e. ITV, Channel 5, are still public, the Channel 4 are public service stations, even though they're for-profit commercial entities in the case of at least five and 
ITV because they, that's why they, you know, that's the quid pro quo for they having a privileged place on the yeah. dial. And they have certain regulatory requirements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we know how Channel 5 is focused on providing high quality news and current affairs, for example. What is the future, would you say, of, and if you don't want to do futurism, which is fair enough, the current state of these things? Because the reason I ask that is that four or five years ago, I thought ITV might die because its commercial revenue was right down, its expenses were up. It looked like it was going to be a busted flush, and now it's doing really well. So what's the future for those sorts of organisations, and what's the future or the present status of them in terms of that notion of having a public service remit, even if it's not the same as that of the BBC? Um, the f I mean, one of the... the, the, the again, the, the, the predicted demise of ITV was... Uh, I think bound up with a whole set of assumptions about the emergence of new technology, you know, the, the multi-channel platform, you're never going to survive as a kind of big beast in that environment, it'll all be fragmented to lots of little players. All those kinds of assumptions, they're all technologically possible, but they all forgot that actually uh, there are things about being a big beast in that environment that work very well, both economically for the player involved, but also for audiences who quite like what, what can be delivered by a large player in that system. So I always thought that was premature. Um, yeah, I mean, the United States is a classic example. I mean, the, the degree to which the same companies have been basically at the top of the... Yeah, there's been a little bit of change around the margins, but it's the same companies, really, that have been running television for ever since television came along, the United States. I mean, the remarkable continuity there. Um, you know, they all have tremendous market power. It's very difficult to dislodge them, and, and that's going to continue to be the case. So, um, actually, I always thought that was premature. The economics of the new model where you have 100 platforms was always bonkers. I mean, you could never afford to have decent programming with the kind of revenue you'd get on those audiences. I mean, that was all, all you were doing was spreading it more thinly. It was a very bad model, really, producing quality television. Um, in terms of public service, I, you have to be pessimistic, I suppose, about the future of that. Um, it's interesting now that actually ITV is increasingly less often referred to as a public service channel and that public service has now become... Oh, it used to be. It used to be that public service was the BBC, then it was the whole of British television within an ecology of public service where all the commercial players were regulated to play a part to, to serve the public interest. Then the Thatcher government allows a purely commercial element to come in with no public service requirements. And now the, the way we talk about public service is that it's really just the BBC. Nobody talks about might have been quite the same way anymore, even though technically it is. Um, so, and that's worrying. And in the BBC, as the sort of last bastion of major public service broadcasting, is constantly under attack from all the other players. Once you create a system whereby it's actually the minority player, not even the wealth, even though it's by far the most successful in terms of audiences, by far. Uh, it's not the biggest financially. Sky is bigger than the BBC. And the BBC, it's not only political pressure, but it's being economically hamstrung by not having the uh, uh, licence fee increased. So it's, it's under pressure in, in, in different mm. ways uh, and has had to try and make income in, in, in different ways, you know, develop income in different, in different ways, been very successful with that. Part of, as I understand it, ITV's arguing for fewer public service obligations has been its cutbacks to arts programming. And Melvin Bragg uh, sort of 
vaguely working class public intellectual novelist an arts presenter over decades on ITV had his programme ended pretty much. Well, he's gone to Sky Arts now, which is a satellite station as part of the Sky package people can get. And they're investing gigantic yeah, amounts very successfully. in the sorts of things that one used to get on, say, BBC Two in the 70s, mm. right? So I'm wondering about market forces here, that a big beast like Sky can now say... Well, actually, part of what makes people subscribe to us is that there are people with high cultural capital tastes in Bourdieu-like terms, mm. and they will watch this stuff. It's not on ITV anymore, so we'll invest quite a lot of money in it. Or Channel 4, because Channel I'm interested 4? in, the, in mm -hmm. the role of Channel 4 in this. When, we were talking, when you were talking just now, Justin, about public service and all of that, it took me back to when Ch Channel 4 was first started, and um, it had a particular remit, which... I think sat somewhere between commercial and public service, where one of its mm. one, one aspect of its remit was to cater to uh, underrepresented groups. So it had, you know, they were the first channel to really to have something which was specifically for um, an Asian audience or yeah. disabled audience, or whatever. Yeah. And that seems to have really um, become. Um, diluted now. Yeah. Um, or disappear almost. Yeah. The, I mean, all right, th there is an argument anyway for, you know, the kind of segregation that that, that, that might, that, 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 that comes with that if you have a program for the disabled mm. or whatever, for Asian audiences. But that aside, um, you don't get evidence, you don't really see ev evidence of that on there anymore, as far as I can tell. I mean, because they've been forced towards a more commercial model. Yeah. I mean, in the past, they were cross-subsidised by ITV, so they could afford to put on programming to audiences that advertisers weren't that bothered about. Yeah. Um, now, uh, they can't afford to do that, so they go for the most lucrative audiences for advertisers who are young and upscaled, and that's... That's Channel 4's main demographic, because mm. it's a very well lucrative audience. So inevitably they will... That decision, I mean, that very economic decision by the government to end the cross-subsidy um, has had huge consequences for those kinds of programming. Which is a pity, because at, at that moment... I mean, you could argue... This is going to sound like a terribly sort of boring old fart thing to say, but yeah. you could argue that the high moment in British television was the period in the 1980s where you had four channels, uh, all of whom were well-funded, all of whom put out quality programs, all of whom were regulated to put out complementary programming. So channel, you know, they all had their own role, they, so they didn't compete each other, putting out the same kind of formulaic thing um, to try and get the audience for one rather than the other. They all tried to put out something different. So you genuinely had a diversity of well-made quality programming amongst the four of them. And, and interestingly, at the time, if you ask British audiences, British audiences thought it was great. I mean, they were very happy with what they had. To such an extent, when the government wanted to create Channel 5, it took them years to find anybody who would even buy Channel 5 because there was everybody said, what's the point of this fifth channel? What will they show that the other four channels aren't already doing very well? There's no obvious market for it. Um, you know, as a commercial proposition or even as a public service proposition, it makes no sense. And consequently, it took them years to even impose Channel 5, if you like, upon the market. Okay. Well, let me ask you this then as a technological question. To me, the really interesting issue where technological determinism has a case in this whole field is satellite or cable. It's not the internet at all. They really change the game because they do away with spectrum scarcity 
they make available all kinds of revenue streams for old-style television. They create the possibility of extremely cheap programming, cheap administration, with the requirement to get quite small numbers of audience members and to make money. That really does change a lot of this, doesn't it? But it was that, it's, it's an interesting history, isn't it? Was, I mean, if you look at why, why did multi-channel television through cable and satellite take off? And my, I suppose my contention would be that I don't think it happened because audiences were dissatisfied, certainly not in the UK, maybe in the US, were dissatisfied with what was being offered. Uh, they, so for example, in the UK's case, um, satellite took off as the main way of getting more channels and it took off for a very simple reason I mean when B Sky B comes along nobody buys the satellites why would you buy it you know what's the, we'll just get a lot of you know, we'll get more commercial imports from the United States a bit of fairly shocky programming the like of which we see on the other channels nobody bought the satellite dishes until Rupert Murdoch buys the rights to the football you know, the most popular sport in Britain, mm. and negotiates a deal where he can offer something that no other channel can offer, which is watching live sport on TV. So you've entered a kind of cultural domain where there is something that's quite precious to a lot of people, which is being able to watch football live, and you can only do it if you buy the satellite. So people bought the satellite. Uh, and of course, once they've done that, of course, you've got them into the system. But you wouldn't have gotten there any other way. So, and Murdoch's been very skillful at using sport to do that. Because it's a kind of aspect of cultural life that if you can take it away from somewhere else and provide it in a new place, people will pay more money for it. But I'm not, I'm not convinced that, and there are other technological reasons why people bought it because you know, the, the signal wasn't very good where they were through the kind of old system, so cable was good for that reason. I'm not persuaded that the demand for having multi-channel through those technologies was created by people who felt that having a hundred channels would offer them you know, better telly than having... But, but I'm not sure, I'm not suggesting that audience demand came first, I'm suggesting it came second. Yeah. Once you have the battering ram, which is what Murdoch calls sport, on your side, and you can draw property lines around an addictive activity, in this case sport on television, and charge rent for access to it, what that then helps to generate is a habit that says great TV comes in large numbers with lots of different channels and I get them on satellite. So you don't, in other words, you haven't just opened the door to getting satellite, you've opened it because you must have sport, you've opened the door to people then having developed within them new tastes and new demands. So I'm not suggesting it's a response to the audience being dissatisfied with BBC One, BBC yeah, Two, yeah, yeah. ITV Channel 4. No, I don't mean that at all. I mean it's something after that. Yeah. See what I mean? Yeah. yeah, but the paradox of all that is that if you look at people's viewing habits, and again, I'm thinking more of the UK here, but I, I suspect it's not dissimilar elsewhere. It, before and after multi-channel, actually people become more conservative. Mm -hmm. With the advent mm -hmm. of, of more choice and more multi-channel, what it allows them to do is to uh, basically escape channeling program, more challenging programs. So in the old system when you had four, and maybe that meant you watched a documentary at nine o'clock because there wasn't much else on that you wouldn't have chosen to watch because it was a bit difficult, it was about a topic you maybe didn't know about, but after you watched it, it might have affected you in various ways. That's less likely to happen now because you don't have to watch it because you can always watch a rerun of you know, Friends or you know, um, 
Big Bang Theory or whatever it is that's kind of easy and you like and you know and it's familiar. And, and that's what increasingly happens now. People, it's easier for people to watch what is familiar mm. and they're accustomed to and is less challenging now than it ever was. And broadly speaking, that's what people are doing. They're not, they're not doing precisely what the technology allows you to do, which would be great if they did, which is to say, let's seek new and interesting and diverse programming. Ooh, look, no, there's something I've no. never seen before on this channel. Let's watch that. They're actually doing the opposite. Absolutely. But the point is that what the, what the technology has done is to reinforce what television was always mostly about, but done so in a more canalized way. In other words, it's, it's created what the Spanish call thematic channels, but what I call genre channels. I.e., if television's all about genre, which is a kind of given of TV studies, right? What it's now done is to say, with the proliferation of spectrum space, if we can even use that concept anymore, you can now have the possibility of only watching a certain genre and yeah. nothing mm. else. Yeah. And Sky has, has yeah. Yeah, been very clever in, with, in the UK with Sky Atlantic. So our yes. box set generation, you know, Sky's gone for us now. We know people who've actually been attracted to Sky and they were kind of interested in the football already or sport. But actually, Sky Atlantic with HBO, you know, the stuff they've been buying in box sets, well, we're piling for that as well. It's good value. Yeah. So that, yeah, they've... they've Exactly. And then a significant proportion of those people who are interested in the golden age of television drama in the United States, which is now and is on HBO and Showtime, i.e. you know, no commercials whatsoever, and small production runs, like in the classic days of British television drama and comedy, those people are also the ones who are then providing market forces in support of Sky Arts. So there are unintended consequences of this stuff. I'm not wishing... To, I'm not for a moment proselytizing for it. But there are unintended consequences where I think this technology actually does make things happen. But in ways that the internet just hasn't yet. So as as I when say. I said at the very beginning, I felt that we'd become liberated from the box in the corner and, and you all smirked. <laughs> um, oh, maybe men. what we're saying Guys, now is... You know, we're all waiting for the football kickoff at 12.45, but <laughs> <we> expect. <laughs> so maybe what we're really arguing is that we've become liberated to become more conservative in our in our viewing habits so we've actually liberated it's the wrong word obviously uh but we kind of liberate we've been freed up to do more of the same <laughs> yeah from the tyranny of a kind of reefian um what's this because it's good for you system um which you know which i think for a lot of us who are, who have a lot of kind of populist leanings is quite yeah i'm kind of bit troubled by that really yeah. because it does because theoretically that's a step forward but actually um you know there was a value in the system that said well we're going to stick a documentary on because it actually you know really will raise public debate and, I remember, and, and on the basis yeah. that you're not going to switch it off yeah yeah, yeah so yeah, that yeah, you're yeah. going to watch telly yeah. whatever <laughs> and I, I still remember back in the 19 early 1980s when john pilger a you know australian british documentary filmmaker made a film about Cambodia called Year Zero yeah. uh, and it was shown I think at nine o'clock on, on ITV. I watched it like you know many many other people at the time didn't know much about Cambodia, knew nothing about Pol Pot, knew nothing about what had gone on and you know millions of people watched it and were absolutely horrified by not only a, you know something that had gone another place but also the complicity of their own governments in allowing all that to happen and in the subsequent developments. That would never happen now in a million years. 
Um, yeah, you yeah. just can't imagine that happening now. And yeah, for me, that's that's a shame. Mm. That's a pity. Yeah, but you do still have these moments, and they are often unexpected ones. I think the we talked about the opening ceremony of the Olympics which I don't know what people were expecting. I wasn't expecting that. I mean, the right wing were very vocal in saying it was all a kind of lefty communist plot, you know, um, to show Britain in this particular way. And people who leaned to the left thought it was amazing. You know, we all, well, we all, we all thought it was amazing. But um, I don't know whether we would have predicted, I certainly wouldn't have predicted that. No, okay, Danny Ball kept it up his sleeve. Yeah. But nevertheless... Who would have known that that was and and that was a, a program which so many people did watch and whether they, to what extent people got the you know subtleties of it or whatever in a way it doesn't matter because it was watched by a lot of people and it did affect a lot of people in that kind of indirect way. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think there are these surprising moments still. No, you're right. Yeah, there are. And again, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have predicted that, would you? No. I guess if you were. We were having this conversation 15 years ago. You mm. never predicted that everybody would watch the same thing, and uh, yeah, it, and it would be of the, the nature that it was. Well, particularly because it showed a vision <coughs> of Britain which I think we've really moved away from in our popular culture. You know, um, in in the press and you know with the government that we have at the moment, there is so much uh, discussion about, um, you know, negative discussion of immigration, for example, or, um, you know, welfare, the NHS, all of those things which are being cut from underneath us and, uh, and, and discussed in, in, for me, very negative terms. Suddenly, it was like, it was okay to be able to say good things about uh, an ethnically mixed society, for example, you know, or... Um, the, the great things that uh, have happened in our history to, you know, the acknowledgement that we're actually not um, a monolithic kind of uh, homogenous grouping of people, you know, that, that it's such a basic thing. And if you think about it, it's so obvious. And yet it took for me that moment to actually make it happen, crystallise that on the screen for people to say, yeah, it's OK. It's OK to uh, to see Britain in this kind of way, you know because there's been just so much contrary dialogue, so much contrary ideological discourse about about it, about Britain as something else. And the same about the NHS, you know... To, Na to National pick, Health Service. Yeah, the National Health Service, to pick, uh, you know, for, in British history, uh, it is something a lot of British people are proud of, with the fact that, you know, Britain created the first National Health Service that would provide healthcare free at the point of need. And that's a source of great pride, but it's, but it's been suppressed by years and years of... You know, ideological assault on the public sector yeah. and, and elevating the private sector as if it's this kind of magic, wonderfully efficient realm. And, and actually, I think a lot of people don't really believe the second and their experience of the private sector suggests that actually it's, it's inefficient, it's bureaucratic, it's annoying, it's irritating in all kinds of ways. So I think people were ready to hear that mm. and, and hear that celebrated and enjoy that. But we haven't, you're right, we haven't seen that for a long time. When mm. somebody actually said, actually, the most important thing that happens in the 20th century is this. Yeah. Absolutely. Anyway. Well, you put that in a much more articulate way. But that's exactly what I was getting at. Yeah, that. The, um, our book, Television Studies, the Key Concepts, Second Edition, uh, 12 
in, in the UK. Um, Coming soon to a recycling yeah. dump near you. Yeah. <laughs> and rumours, rumours that you can get this free online. Oh, uh, unfounded. Well, we have to stop. And if you do find it free online, it's Please. obviously a knockoff. Yeah, in theory, it, it will be missing keywords. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Concepts. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, in our book, there's an, a, an entry on community television whatever that is but it, it kind of uh, I'm just interested by you know the equivalent to podcasts um, uh, whether the, you know the impact looking back you know community television we were talking about people just setting up television stations or being given space to do whatever they want is that, does that still you know is that what's Which, the impact well oddly that? I mean oddly the British government has sort of have made a rather half-hearted attempt to reintroduce the idea through the creation of city broadcasting licences, um, which have now been awarded across British cities, um, my own city of Cardiff being one thereof. Uh, everybody said, this is bonkers because the British government wants to do it on a commercial basis and it won't make money, which has always been the issue for community television. So it's odd, it, it sort of trundles on. But the issues are always the same, I suppose, although... The technology has made all this much made, to do. made a big difference because, yeah. for example, in the United States, the analog spectrum that was deserted by the major networks involved a handover because they were given all this digital, digital spectrum for free, could have got billions of dollars into public revenue had they had to pay for it, but they didn't have to. And when they gave up their analog space in order to move to digital, the quid pro quo was all right, we've given you this for free. Now what you've got to do is give us back the analogue space, which they didn't want to do because they hoped to turn it into commercial propositions. And so that's been handed over to all kinds of, not necessarily community groups, but not-for-profit groups, let's say. Mm. You know, uh, emergency services has always had space, now it's got a lot more space. Mm. And other things too. So, yes, I mean, I think that that entry community TV really says something. When it comes to podcasts, some Publishers I've spoken to, book publishers, magazine, newspaper publishers, have invested a lot of time and effort and money into podcasting because they see it as a means of you know, developing their offerings and being able to market themselves and so on. It's, some have tried that and have found it's not worth it, that it achieves literally nothing. But are always worried that there's some way of doing it that would work better if they just knew what it was, but they can't work it out. A lot of places are simply repurposing, to use the term, what they're already providing. TV stations, for example, you know, Sky uh, Sports has a Sunday morning cricket writers discussion program during the northern summer. You can get it for free, even though you're not a Sky subscriber, as a podcast without the images. Most of the regular programs that are available from the BBC... Uh, from National Public Radio in the US, from Canadian Broadcasting, CBC in Canada, from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, ABC, for example, are available free as podcasts. So I think it's, it's an interesting mixture. Mm. It's basically a new way of doing radio, but radio it is of interest to newspapers yeah. and television yeah. stations. But the problem is, in many things, it's not production. It's, well, it's consumption a little bit in that yeah the technology makes it much cheaper to do these things now and to actually pump it out to everybody but whether everybody will know about it will want to access it is 
And how do you market it? That's yeah. the other thing. Yeah. You know, because of who I am, I can be guaranteed a minimum of, uh, you know, 100 listeners to... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but I noticed that you've turned onto the C-O-M-M-U-N-I-T-Y area entry. In yes, because I was just flicking book. through it and I, I note that when we wrote this in 2007... Um, we were saying, and this is a quote, the conditions for a, a truly pluralistic and democratic media environment have never been better. On the other hand, the media industries are becoming more competitive and, competitive and commercially oriented. And I think and this was to do with community t television. Mm. Um, and I remember at the time that that really was the big... Uh, Debate, well, not a new debate because it had been that had been going on for some time, for years really. But this this whole idea about whether or not the relationship between the development of technology and what you do with it socially, which is I guess what you've just been talking mm. about really. Mm. But that mm. thing about how democratic can our media be, um, and what's going to get in the way of that. And I don't know. I mean, do you think that we, if we were rewriting that now, we would change? we would change that section, that Actually, sentence. Actually, I'm, I'm reading it now as we speak. Did, uh, did you not remember it? Then? <laughs> I'm a bit surprised. Because, um, you know, Neil and Byrne, before they go to bed each night, as part of their prayers, they actually recite <laughs> segments of well, them. Well, I yeah. actually know it. Yeah, I hear that they can do it off by heart. Yes, yes. <laughs> do you, do, do Were you... their time would be an extraordinary thing to ask them to basically recite it. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah, no, I think you're right. I think... Having a quick look at yeah, I mean the issue, the issues are financial and technological, and I think we make those points yeah. succinctly and effectively. And effectively. <laughs> but it's it's a it's a very important debate which isn't just about TV and isn't just about media actually, because it's a debate that's been going on for a long time about everything within capitalist societies, including the nature of work. And we were talking this morning about. Spain has now gone over 25%, I think it's 25.5% unemployment. And, and we've always had this, um, this, for years, we've been talking about the fact that, you know, there, there must be a better way of organising work so that more people can do less work, rather than having a lot of people sort of chasing their asses for 15, 16 hours a day, and then a lot of other people, 25% in the case of Spain, who have no work and therefore not very much money, you know, to be more socially organised, and I know this is kind of you know a political discussion now, um, which we're probably not going to solve. <laughs> but it's a really, the whole the whole time thing is really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the the, the fact that um, well, I said genre was the key to television, but time and genre are really the keys to television, aren't they? Because yeah, nobody talks about. I mean, you know, the cost of the technology might have changed, but the the cost, the amount of time we have to make this stuff, to make community television, whatever it is. Actually, there's no, there's no more of that than ever was. So as a commodity, that's as scarce as it ever was. And nobody really factors that in. But yeah, I, I, I was watching Question Time on the BBC this week. and uh, Which doesn't... Question Time uh, sometimes refers to parliamentary day during the week when the Prime Minister is required for half an hour to... No, no, no. This question, is, sorry. But this is referring to a television yeah. programme, even though the BBC does cover Question yeah, Time, yeah. that is different. It's a panel. It's a panel discussion. You usually have three politicians and then a couple of people that have something to say about politics but are not politicians. Um, Diane Abbott and Michael Portillo. That kind of thing. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, but it was, it was clear that the... I mean, the government and various sections of the right-wing press... And we've seen it many times before, have 
conducting a successful ideological campaign to demonise people who are out of work and receive benefits from the state. And it's going really well from their point of view. Mm. You know, the audiences are getting riled up, getting annoyed by people who are apparently getting a handout. But you could make a very good argument that people who are on benefits are actually doing everybody else a huge favour mm. because jobs are scarce and will become increasingly scarce with technological developments. So somebody who is prepared to be unemployed, which we all know from quality of life indicators is not a good thing to do in terms of your own quality of life. I mean, you are making a sacrifice in terms of what you get. Somebody's prepared to do that, live off not a huge amount of money, and therefore not compete in the labour market, is doing everybody else an enormous favour. So, you know, it will be a completely different way of viewing it. But actually, just as rational a one, you could argue, yeah, money well spent, you know, thank you mm. for not competing, yeah, thank you for not going out and looking for jobs, Yeah, please don't. Yeah, right now, I'm just nagging you, you've really got to look like you really want a job, other people won't give you money. But actually, they should just say, forget it. Don't, but don't compete. It, it, it wastes everybody's time. You know, all the people who are making employment decisions have to read more applications. It would be a whole lot easier if you had a group of people who said, actually, for the good of the rest of society, we will be permanently unemployed. I mean, that's a fantastically challenging thing to live. do. You could argue. And we will live on a reduced <clears throat> amount of benefit. Um, we're very happy with that. Well, I, I don't know yeah. whether you've picked It'll this up applauded. over the last couple of days, but there have been proposals over the last 48 hours. One was um, that people uh, who are on state pensions should have to do voluntary work uh, or else their state pensions will be reduced, which is hilarious if it wasn't so awful because... Um, you know, they've already actually worked to, to earn the state pension in the first place, yeah, right? I, no, I, I'm broadly in favour of that, <laughs> and, and I'm speaking on behalf of my 93-year-old mother, who I know is very keen to, to go and work out in the community. <laughs> and the other one was um, the proposal to uh, stop or reduce uh, welfare benefit payments to anybody with more than two children. And as a mother now, of twins, I've got, I've got five, and I haven't ever been on benefits except, of course, the ones that we all get, which people always forget about when they talk when they start demonising people on benefits. They forget about, you know, all the benefits that all of us have, like the NHS and like um, state pensions and like going to your doctor uh, free of charge and all free those primary things. and secondary education. Free, yeah. yeah, exactly, all of those things because people say I've never had benefits, but of course we all do. Um, yeah, five children. But I was thinking particularly, and this is again from a personal perspective, if you have one child and then you have another one and you ha end up with twins or triplets, you know, so what happens then to your benefits? I'd like to know. Right, it's a good question, yeah. So if you go over the threshold, but accidentally... accidentally. Yeah, so it's an interesting technical point. <laughs> well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for as we've reached one of the great imponderables, namely fertility. <laughs> Uh, but it has been a very fecund conversation. I'd like to thank Bernadette Casey and Justin Lewis and Neil Casey. And I hope, Bern and Justin and Neil, that when the fifth and perhaps even 25th edition of <laughs> Television Studies key, key, concept, the key Concepts, the Key Concepts, yeah, yeah. which I believe has recently been rated by a very important critic as a top book, <laughs> comes out. I'm hoping that the three of you, perhaps accompanied by your five children, Bern, <laughs> might join us for another round table on the state of Britain today. And I should just point out, we are round a round table. <laughs> Indeed we, we, are. Are. Round. we are. So I hope you'll all be back, and congratulations on what is a top book. Thank you, Toby. <laughs>